Welcome to Talking New Energy, a podcast from Delta EE, the new energy experts. We'll be talking about how the energy transition is developing across Europe, with guests who are working at the leading edge of this transition. Hello and welcome to the podcast. My name is Stephen Ashurst and I am our Principal Analyst at Delta EE. And I'll be standing in for regular host John Slow for today's episode. The topic we will be discussing today is the use of fuel cells for stationary power generation. This is a market that Delta E has been involved in for a long time. And I know that from discussing with John that in the, prior to the podcast, that in the early years of his career in the energy sector, back in the second half of the 90s, fuel cells were red hot, as he described it. Money flowed into the sector and some promised fuel cells in every home. You know, over the last 20 years, fuel cells have certainly made progress, but nothing like the progress that some may have thought. And maybe we, we shouldn't be surprised. You know, new energy conversion hardware typically has a, a long commercialization time in the energy sector, be it the steam engine, fuel cells, gas turbines, or even photovoltaics. So today I'm joined by, by two people who have worked in the fuel cell sector for many years to explore where fuel cells are at today what's been learned over the last 20 years or so, and uh, to discuss what the future holds for fuel cells. What will their role be in the energy transition? So let me introduce my guests. First up, Alexander Doinsteiner, who leads on fuel cells at Wiesmann, one of Europe's biggest heating appliance manufacturers. Hi, Alexander. Hi, Stephen. Hi. Alexander, can you give us a quick overview of, of your work with fuel cells and your role at Wiesmann today? Yes, sure. Um, first of all, thank you very much for having the opportunity today to speak about fuel cells because you said it already. It has a long history with all ups and downs we experienced at that time. And um, yeah, a few words about my person. Uh, I'm a mechanical engineer, studied at the University of Stuttgart. Um, but then relatively quickly went into the energy sector because I was very um, yeah, impressed about that, about this uh, very interesting uh, opportunity also to work uh, first at the Popatal Institute for Climate, Environment and Energy, uh, make my thesis uh, on, on energy topics already at that time in my uh, end of a study. Um, in 2002, I joined Weiland, um, which I immediately started with uh, joining um, the fuel cell team. Um, and for more than 17 years, I was responsible for all the topics around market, um, product management, um, funding um, acquisition, for example. I was um, more than 10 years, one of the uh, people worked for the German initiative fuel cell, but also on European level, Michael CGP, um, the coordinator for, for fuel cells at that level, at the new industry group at that time, now Hydrogen Europe. Set up in a field pace, also the German funding project. So a lot of things with uh, with fuel cells, and um, yeah, after 17 years at one of the same company, I, I yeah decided to 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 leave Weiland uh, in uh, September last year, and since mid of October last year, um, I'm um, product line owner for fuel cells at Fisman, which I'm very happy with, because Fisman is a, is a very interesting company on the one side in a very impressive transition phase at the moment also one of the leading uh, companies in that field and also uh, very happy to follow up 
uh, fuel cells in, in my responsibility with a great team there. So um, really happy to be there now. So um, completely end-to-end -end responsibility um, for, for the yeah, setup of roadmaps together with the markets and everything which is needed. Absolutely. Okay. Well, thanks. Thanks for, yeah. Yeah, uh, a wealth of experience there, so you know, fantastic to, to have you join. And uh, similarly, my my second guest is Mark Selby, CTO at fuel cell company Series Power. Hello, Mark. Good afternoon. So, so Mark, you've you've been at Series for is it 14 years now? Um, can you can you tell us a bit about the company, how it's changed in your time there, uh, and also what your role focuses on? Yeah, thanks, Stephen. Um, yeah, so I mean, I think CTOs can be lots of different things, but my view of my role is I sit on the roundabout between customers, investors, uh, the technology community, and and policymakers and and people like Delta to help understand a what the innovation journey is and b uh, what the role these technologies can play in in the energy transition. So that's really how I think about the role of CTO in, in Sarah's Power today. I, I guess if you if you want me to tell you a little bit about the background of Sarah's Power over the last sort of mm -hmm. decade and a half, I, I, in some ways I think you can step back and look about the clean technology space in general. I, I, I think it's it's very much a, a game of two halves. I think as your as as John was saying. At the end of the 90s, early 2000s, this sector was red hot. But I would very much describe that that period as a as a technology push period. And I think we've we've changed into very much a market pull. And I, and I guess practically, what are the things that I look at that that really illustrate that? And I, I think when I took on the job at Sarah's, every conversation I had with friends or family or indeed people I was having to deal with through through my job in Sarah's started off with what's a fuel cell and it went on beyond what's a fuel cell to what's CHP and why do I care and why do I want a fuel cell boiler and uh, and a very very um, narrow and shallow understanding of how these more efficient energy conversion technologies might create value mm. um, so I think as in Serra's, in those days, we had a lot of heavy lifting to do about explaining what a fuel cell was, its application, the value proposition, what was the technology market fit, all the, all the good stuff when you think about product development. We had to do all of that and explain it all and be real evangelists. And that, that manifested whether we were trying to find a supplier for a component or, or trying to explain it to a partner, a uh, channel partner that might sell these things into the market. And I think if you look at that and you look at this space, I mean, particularly the people that are involved in, in energy conversion technologies are extremely conservative in their decision making and thought processes. They, they buy technologies and they, uh, in some cases, might last for 10 years. In some cases, energy conversion technologies, you have to think about them over a 25 year lifespan. So it's a very conservative industry. I would say a lot of that's still true today. But I don't think we have to do much selling of the idea itself. And certainly we don't have to explain what a fuel cell is. And I, I think our collaborators have already bought into the idea. They've already made a strategic decision. Um, and the conversations are a lot more sophisticated. And because people have already made a strategic decision to enter this space, 
they really want to understand the subtleties around how different technologies create value in different ways, how how the value chain might work, how partnering with a company like Sarah's can create more value than simply going it on their own and doing their own organic R&D, or even buying a white label product might be another approach. So people are now thinking about um, tactics more than is it strategically right to think about this uh, post-combustion era, if you like. Yeah, no, that's a really positive uh, uh, summary, obviously, and very helpful to me because I, I think I will just add a little bit more context um, from Delta E's perspective based on the research that, that we've done. And then, yeah, I'm, I'm very interested to, to delve deeper into the opinions that, that and experiences that, that you both have based on your your wealth of, of, of experience in the, the fuel cell space. So just to very briefly explain from my perspective from Delta EE, I manage our program of research on the market for high efficiency gas technologies. And through this, I have been researching fuel cells and stationary power applications for a number of years as well. Some key high level observations of mine on the sector are that it is moving in a positive direction. So when you look at numbers, there's an excess of 300,000 units installed in Japanese homes and businesses, but a uh, coordinated effort led by the government has succeeded in establishing a market there. By comparison here in Europe, we've reached around 15,000 cumulative installed units now. We've, we've taken a slightly different approach to establishing the market. Establishing a route to market has been a key challenge, but it's a key challenge, it's a difficulty for, for all highly efficient but higher cost new technologies. You know, fitting into the, the existing supply chain isn't easy, especially as installers, heating installers, still rule the market and have a strong influence over customer decision making. Cost, product costs remain comparatively expensive at current volumes. Some players though are making many thousands of, of units per year now, if not more, which is leading to cost reductions. At this point, however, subsidies, ongoing incentives for fuel cells, I think in many cases remain vital to end user economics. And lastly, there's competition, whether it's from boilers in people's houses or from internal combustion engine, CHP, and larger applications like commercial buildings. Both have provided stiff competition for fuel cells to, to challenge. Alexander, I'd like to come back to you now. Can you tell us what it's like selling fuel cells to homes today? You know, who's who's buying and why? And what do you think is stopping more people buying fuel cells right now? Yeah, sure. Uh, yes, first of all, I um, would like to agree on Mark's statement, who uh, I think pointed out very well that times has changed into a market pull phase now. Mm -hmm. And I fully agree. We were a long time in technology push, and there were all um, ups and downs we experienced in, in developing the very efficient but also um, relatively a complex technology. It's really an innovation. It's not a, a second or third or fourth or whatever generation of a new traditional heat um, appliance. It's a, it's a real innovation. And I think innovation takes time. Um, that's a bit of pity on the one side, but on the other side, it's a normal character. We, we know um, everyone. And innovation also sometimes needs a bit of patience, but I'm, I, I really think that's the changing rule at the moment, that we are now in a market pull phase. I completely agree on that. Um, yeah, who is um, buying fuel cells? So our product um, 
is, is uh, being sold um, mainly in a one single family home, uh, two family homes and, and, and maybe also, also small commercial. We also have first products in multi-family homes but the main segment is uh, single family home and two family homes. And why are they selling that? That's very simple because they would like to have an, an efficient product which uh, which is a, was a great experience also. Um, everyone who has experienced uh, at any time um, a fuel cell uh, really in, in, in life uh, are surprised about the, the quality of the product and uh, yeah, you hardly can hear them. It's, it's the best um, gas technology you can experience um, with, a, with a great uh, outcome of electricity power and, and, and great, yeah, clear heat. So the, the, the satisfaction and this is what we have learned out of the different demonstration uh, tests we have made in, in Carlux in Germany in Enfield and Pace now and also within yeah, the 10,000 units we, we sold overall in the last years, um, that everyone is really, um, yeah, absolutely fine with the product. Um, normal and typically is also, we know that, that uh, in, a, in a learning curve, um, the, the technology is compared to Japan, you, you mentioned uh, quite right that in, in Japan, also the uh, Japanese government, um, um, yeah, has chosen a completely other approach. From my point of view, Japanese has chosen this is a product and we would like to innovate them. Mm -hmm. So there was a great stimulation uh, of the market, whereas in, in Europe and also in Germany, where we have our base um, and European market, I think we have a, a bit of a different approach. That means that we develop technologies that's very good. And then it's more or less up to the industry to innovate them into the market. And that's the challenge we have. But on the other side, we have started with great funding programs like in Germany, the KFW 433 program. We have in others in UK and Belgium and, and so on. We have PACE. And what Mark already said, I, I can only repeat that. We are now in a market pull phase now. And we, we see already now, even with the relatively low numbers of the 15K units you mentioned, that we see um, drop down of costs and also in a log logical consequence drop down of, of, uh, of prices. So um, that's the main challenge from my point of view at the moment. We need to go forward. Um, we mm -hmm. just started um, a network of European scale-up of uh, micro-CHP fuel cells, which is open to every customer and every, uh, every manufacturer and every association. So this will be one of the activities we will drive forward. Um, but this needs to be done in the next period of time. And also what Mark said uh, previously, we can also experience that um, a lot of more customers, even um, also big installers and also quite someone who said never build in a fuel cell, come to us and ask for the fuel cell. So I'm very optimistic about the future, but I know also from, from the history and, and everyone who has made innovation, um, it needs time. You will have to go the next step and I'm, I'm very sure that this will be a success story after afterwards. Okay, great. Well, we'll probably we'll come back and touch a little bit on a little bit more on some of the the points you referenced there, Alexander. I would particularly be interested in in things things like mm -hmm. costs and just the future future view for the products and just you know how much more refined they they can get. Um, and I guess just to to summarise, yes, from from Beesman's perspective, you build and sell the appliance with the Beesman brand through your your you know your your sales network and and through your partners. Um, Mark, the, the series strategy is a little bit different. 
So you're now focused on the core technology and you supply this to your partners in, in different ways. So question, question to you, how important still is residential combined heat and power applications for you compared to the other applications you're involved in and off those applications, which ones are you most excited by? Yeah, good, good question. I mean, um, as a father, that's that's a bit like someone asking me who my favourite child is. Um, <laughs> I think if if you again, if you step back, I think if you look at CHP in the nineties and two thousands, one of the reasons it was so hot and um, so much money flowed into that space was, in terms of application and its impact, it's a real moonshot technology opportunity. It's really hard, but it, it does create enormous amounts of value in the energy system. I and mean, I think I think recent analysis from Imperial from a guy called Goran Strabak shows deploying fuel cells in the energy system, even on natural gas on this decarbonisation journey, is worth billions of annual recurring savings just in terms of enabling uh, the transition, dealing with the cost of intermittency, deferring reinforcement to enable more more renewables. So that massively distributed energy system is hugely valued. Uh, hugely valuable but um, I think if not being entirely serious for a minute um, I think consumers are a really hard hard market to sell into um, consumers want appliances to be free invisible last forever um, and it's that that sort of market is really challenging especially when you look at things like the paybacks of these technologies in the early state in the early stages so it's, it's great that Alexander is finding a market of single family and uh, multiple families. Um, I think one of the things we're seeing, which is sitting alongside that, is a move to slightly larger technologies. I mean, we, we launched our first technology that you can actually buy uh, through a company called Mura in Japan last year. Um, mm. and, and they're selling in early, uh, low commercial scale, so uh, a few kilowatts in cafes, 7-Eleven shops, hotels, places that have high heat and power demand where there is a much simpler business case, but also where the people buying that asset are much more used to understanding how to amortize the cost of a technology choice over a number of years. They're much more used to costing in service level agreements. So I think, I think it is, for me, the next stage of really rapid growth in this sector will be in that small commercial stage. I still think domestic micro CHP is a massive opportunity, but I also think it's the hardest product development challenge. And it's 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 really heartening to hear Beatman's confidence and progress in that space. Um, I think Sarah's continued to work on that for a long time and we still have partners looking at that sector. What, whilst we were still focusing on that sector as a product company, um, we did a lot of work to really hone the technology and work out what were the what were the market challenges for this technology and that led to a point where we felt we had a really differentiated technology that was was very broadly applicable and and as you said we we changed our business model from a one of a product company um little company in sarah's trying to compete with the likes of beastman to a licensing company where a little product technology company in sarah's in Sussex could license our technology to a Wiesman or indeed to partners like Bosch and Weichai and Doosan as we're doing today. And that, that means a few things. One, we've, we've got a big brother that can help us on that journey. 
And as part of deploying this really important technology at pace and scale, it means that people who are world-class at doing product development are doing the product development. And people like Sarah's who are world-class at doing the technology development and the material science are doing what they're good at as well. So when you think about this as an ecosystem, I think the change in business model for Sarah's was about allowing everyone to do what they're really good at in order to get that pace and scale that this industry needs to meet all of its uh, market requirements, particularly cost. Yeah, no, I would say a useful analogy, even though it might not be exactly uh, bang on, is like the, the Intel inside idea where you supply the heart of the the, no, uh, spot on. the system I mean, we, we, to your integrator who builds and then sells the appliance to the end customer. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that I think that is a good analogy. We, we, we talk around Sarah's inside as a concept. I think the people who we most model our business model on is ARM, who um, people might recognize as a originally a Cambridge-based technology licensing company. But if you've got pretty much any mobile phone, whether it's an ARM, uh, whether it's an iPhone or a Samsung or Hawaii, chances are it's got some ARM intellectual property in and they've licensed it out. I think at one point in the early 2000s, they had a 95% market share in the smartphone market. And, and that sort of ability uh, as a licensor, licensor of technology means that you can access a much broader pool of world-class product development partners. Absolutely. And but I was going to ask you both uh, a little bit more on how you would characterize the technology, but I think that's been quite clear based on, on what you've said to this point with regards to the, um, the customer feedback on, on the quality, the, we've talked about volumes and you're, you're optimistic for going forward. If we, if we can talk a little bit about cost before we move on to the next topic, you know, how, how much can cost come down from, from where they're at at the moment? Yeah, may I start? Uh, so for, for, for me, it's quite impressive to see um, compared to my uh, first steps into the fuel cell market in 2002, uh, we had at that time um, a requirement for 40,000 running hours for fuel cells. And I said at that time, oh, oh, oh be careful, yeah? 40,000 hours for one stack is a quite high number. Be careful, yeah? 20,000 is also sufficient if we change the stack one time and the customer is able to pay that and there's a positive business model. In the meantime, we have 80,000 hours now. And um, looking on our few thousands of uh, data we got from the fuel sites installed in the buildings of our customers, we see, for example, an average lifetime of the Vito Valor of 4,000 running hours uh, a year. That's an average number. There are some below in, in well-insulated buildings, uh, some of quite, quite higher numbers, up to, up to six or 7,000 even. But looking on that numbers, it means that you can live with one stack over four, uh, 20 years. So one of the major, um, I think, um, announcements we can every uh, day repeat is the, the technology is mature. It's not any longer in a technology phase. Yeah. Absolutely robust, and, and I think I speak not only for our technology, but also for others. And um, how, can the, how much can the cost come down? Yeah? If you're looking at potential cost curves, I'm quite sure, uh, looking already at the low numbers, I, I said it already in, uh, in our podcast, that. The, the, the low numbers of uh, the 15 you mentioned here for Europe uh, already leads to a, a cost down. Um, looking on the potential we see, and which Mark already addressed also, 
um, in, the, in the residential and also I can confirm maybe there's a positive business case uh, in the next generation class let's say in several kilowatt power up to 10 maybe um, this is also something which I see a potential of fuel cells to follow up the technology of uh, con, um, com combustion engines for example yeah? um, yes there is a quite high potential to to come cost down um, and also to make um, then the product uh, even more um, cost competitive as, as it is already today absolutely okay. yeah well you've, you've both touched on on that point there of the the market potential in the small commercial segment and that's something that in delta ee i know that we we share that view and um, we we believe that it's products fuel cell products can more quickly at lower volumes uh, become cost competitive with the incumbent which would be the gas uh, internal combustion engine chp system um, talking about gas and thinking about the fuel source in general so i think natural gas will still be used for heating and for power generation for quite a while yet but the the share of renewables and power generation is going very quickly and there's an increased focus on decarbonizing heat and where hydrogen may also fit into this, not least specifically now and what's happened on the, on the back of, of COVID-19 and the European Commission's uh, proposals for a, a green recovery. So the open question now is, are fuel cells running on natural gas sustainable or will they be running on hydrogen and have to run on hydrogen or low carbon gases more in the future? Yeah, okay, maybe I, maybe I start on that one and Alexander jump in. Mm -hmm. but. I think I think the first thing that I think is very clear to me is that we're moving towards a greater understanding of what electrification means. And I and I think one of the things that you'll see as an emerging part of the conversation in the energy system is people will start talking about a merit order of different different technologies. And I think the, the bottom line there will be if you can use electrons directly, you definitely should. And and the most uh, obvious example of that today is is the really rapid increase in people using uh, passenger electric vehicles for getting around cities i think once you get past that direct electrification i think there are a lot of more subtle questions about what you do next about whether it's natural gas or hydrogen is it fuel cells or heat pumps um but for me the clear thing is that the most robust and lowest carbon energy system of the future will be an ecosystem there's no one silver bullet technology that solves all of the issues now whether that's fuel cells that are dispatchable because they help deal with intermittency or whether it's all sorts of other things these technologies are all important and i, I mentioned the imperial work earlier but there's there's lots of similar studies um i think the simple answer is yes i think a practice in practice a, a dispatchable distributed generation on any form of gas hydrogen or natural gas enables a, a more intermittent renewable heavy grid in a cost competitive way compared to grid scale batteries so it's definitely mm. going to be part of the journey and, and all of those technologies are going to play a part i think when you talk about hydrogen specifically i think particularly for domestic properties and particularly for heat i think people are going to do some very large experiments on that but i think there's still a lot of questions to answer about the whole value chain um, i think there is a lot to run in this story um, I think the most important question will be um, green hydrogen will be a growing commodity, but in the early phases, it's going to be relatively rare at the right price. So the question will be, if I can make green hydrogen, 
what's the most valuable thing I can do with it? And burning it in homes might not be the top of the list. Yep, uh, yeah, very, very good points there. Mark and Alexander, yeah, would you mind um, perhaps a, a brief addition to, to the points raised by Mark there? Sure, I, in general, I fully agree. So um, I, I remember the lunch debate we had several years ago at the European Union, and they are also raising the question, why should we fund and support um, a fossil fuel food cell yeah, based on natural gas? And I said, look, in a, within a few days, we exchange your old boiler into a fuel cell. And within that few days after that, you have 30 to at least 50% of CO2 savings within that three days. And then let's start the other ways up to 95, whatever we want to reach and have to reach according to Paris Agreement and whatever we have signed with the climate change. So there is no digital transversation from a fossil fuel landscape in the, in the gas market today to a fully renewable one. It's a step-by-step. -step. And I fully agree, this is already a clean technology. Yes, the answer is also for me, not surprisingly, yeah. Uh, this is a sustainable um, product. And this is a, a quite huge also um, potential for the future if we would have then, um, but that's not, I think, not a task for Fishman for that, to provide a hydrogen in the natural gas. Because we are preparing for that. We are working on different uh, demonstration projects and also R&D projects to make, let's say, as well, condensing barrels also uh, fuel cells fit for the future, also using hydrogen, then based on a more and more uh, renewable energy mix. But um, the answer is absolutely yes. Let's transfer that, make the first step. Even based on natural gas, it's a quite high and substantial uh, saving of CO2. Absolutely. That's right. I think. I think the thing that's worth adding to that is. And I, I completely agree with all this, but it, in some ways, it's not surprising you've got two fuel cell guys who are, are violently agreeing. Um, <laughs> I, I guess listeners right. to this might might be a little bit worried that there's some bias. So, what proof point would you look or you point your listeners to? And I, and I think one of the key things in this fuel cells are a real no regrets technology. They work on the energy vectors like natural gas that are here today. You roll forward 10 years, and, and if the hydrogen experiment really does succeed, and I, I really hope it does, um, mm. these technologies are also ready. Um, a, a product with our technology in today uh, running on hydrogen might be 40% cheaper than one running on natural gas. And we, we've, we've got products that work like that running today in, in Horsham. So there is a, a, a real no regrets aspect to this. And, and if you're looking for a proof point beyond what people like Alexander and I say, who are understandably evangelical around around this stuff, look at the real hard corporate decisions that are being made. Um, there are really large organisations like Bosch and Cummins and Weichai and Doosan and Honda, who are all making very serious corporate bets worth tens to hundreds of millions of pounds about adding fuel cell technology to their portfolios. Um, and they're doing that in a mixture of ways, from M&A uh, through to organic R&D, through to licensing technologies from people like Ceres. So that would be one proof point I would point, point people to. And the second is I, I would look at the valuations of, of key actors in this space. You only have to look at probably half a dozen companies in this sector in the last 18 months, and you can find two to three billion pounds in uh, corporate valuations increase just because of their actions in fuel cells. So 
look at where the money's flowing and look at where the money is flowing from people who aren't necessarily uh, already have a vested interest. They're not evangelists. They're look, making hard commercial decisions about what the transition in the energy system is going to look like and what it's going to do to their existing businesses. And those people are all making bets in a combination of fuel cells and other electrification technologies. So to me, as a, if I were a total cynic, I would say follow the money and follow the money from people who don't already have a vested interest. There certainly is no, no denying there has been a, a flurry of activity uh, that's picked up again over the last several years when it comes to investments, acquisitions, partnerships, uh, outside of the companies you mentioned as well, the utilities, the energy majors, more so from the perspective of, of hydrogen production and electrolysis. But you're right, it's all, it's all interrelated. So I guess my final question as we, as we start to wrap up here, um, I need to take out John's uh, prized Talking New Energy crystal ball, which he's entrusted me with this week. So I'll be very careful as I set the dial to this week in 2030, 10 years time. And my question is, in 2030, what does good look like for fuel cells? And what is perhaps the one or two key challenges faced by the sector, by companies like yourselves to, to get there? So if I can ask for a, a brief uh, succinct response maybe with, with Alexander, you going first, what's good look like in 2030? Yeah, for me, it's, um, it's uh, 10 years is, is uh, quite a long time on the one side, on the second is, is quite uh, near. Um, but for me, it's clear looking at our business, um, I'm sure that in 2030, customers will automatically also consider fuel cells as a normal product as they do today with condensing boilers or maybe heat pumps. That's something which would definitely change and will happen, whereas we are very, um, let's say, low numbers at the moment considering fuel cells. And I'm sure and that's something which we have to do um, in the next period of time uh, and progress on that, which we well performing, I think. But don't stop that. Convince people that there is an option, um, depending on their different living situations. So we are developing for, for customer solutions, not technologies. And I think that's. Um, that's important to understand and then always looking from the customer's perspective. But if they do, and they will consider fuel cells, I'm sure as soon as they have an experience with that, they're very um, yeah, satisfied with that and this is a fantastic product. So tell about fuel cells, deploy further, yeah, uh, continue the cooperation with policy also, that's also a thing. Yeah. So we need the funding programs uh, for, the, for the fuel cell also in the future. That's clear, we are in the starting phase of innovation. Okay and get the cost down but uh, that would be my 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 yeah positive outlook on, on the next 10 years you mentioned right thanks and, and and mark closing remarks from you yeah i guess i think it's similar i mean for me success looks like in this space i mean i'm a, I'm a technologist more than a product developer in some ways so for me success looks like we stop talking about these things as in competition with each other uh, and we start talking about what's the new age and we start talking about the age of electrochemistry. We start thinking about the post-combustion era. I want people to be looking at the idea of burning stuff and thinking that's crazy. Um, and, I, and I think real recognition was when everyone on the street knows what a fuel cell is at the same sort of level. They know what a battery or an engine is. Not everyone knows what the Carnot cycle is or how a combustion engine works, but everyone knows what an engine is or a battery. And I think for me, that is we have got this technology to the right position 
in the debate about the energy transition. And, and that transition for me is, is not about startups like Sarah's or small companies uh, pushing technology. It is about when all of the major energy system corporates have a position in this space. And, and that's for me is what success looks like. Excellent. Well, yeah, I think if I was to very quickly summarise both your your perspectives there, I think this this coming decade that we've just entered into is 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 crucial, perhaps the most crucial decade yet in terms of establishing a longer term future role for fuel cells in the in the wider energy system. I think there are some compelling arguments for it. I can see why there are some challenges against it as well, but um, you know it's a market that, that we'll continue to follow very closely and you know, we'll look with interest um, for uh, announcements and developments from, from your companies and others over the coming years. So all that remains for me to do is to thank you both very much for a really interesting discussion and for taking the time to, to share your thoughts on the podcast today. If listeners have any questions or would like to follow up about the points raised in this episode, you can do that in the usual way. Just send us an email to info at delta-ee.com and we'll pick that up and action accordingly. And thanks for listening. If you're as passionate about the energy transition as we are, then please keep in touch. You can follow us and me on Twitter, LinkedIn, or subscribe to the podcasts on your chosen podcast platform. If you like the podcast and like sharing, then please do rate us. And to listen to archived episodes, to read transcripts, and to see the latest Delta EE insights, then please visit www.delta-ee.com. Thank you.